just going to have to start this one off with a comment on the last digital noise post. Are you ready, Richard? Oh, yeah. Uh, this fan says, Richard, you seem like a nice guy, and you certainly know your stuff. Aww. But having a whole episode with a variety of adjectives beyond phenomenal and creepy was pure bliss. That seems sweet, right? That That's delightful. Yeah, I don't know why he said but. Hmm. That's weird. Well, he goes on and says, Also, hearing English people attempt to copy American intonation by going up at the end of their sentences is incredibly annoying. Is it? I don't know if Americans would notice, but the last person I can remember doing that was Nadine Coyle from Girls Aloud. And you I'm pretty, remember Girls Aloud? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you don't want to be like her. I accept you going with ass instead of arse, candy instead of sweets, etc., etc., but the intonation thing is like nails on a blackboard. I wish you well, but wish even more the digital noise could go back to being my favorite podcast more than one in every three. Well, what I don't get is she thought I was trying to be American. Can I cover? Who wants to be an Australian? <laughs> Beer? to Digital Noise. I'm Chris. And I'm Richard. Uh, yeah, deal with it. <laughs> and we are phenomenally going... creepy Richard who goes up at the end of the sentences. I love you, audience. We are going over the latest Blu-ray and DVD releases that we got to watch anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have a bunch of fun titles for you this week, including a giveaway. Giveaway! Uh, but first, let me just go over the stuff. The stuff you need to know. First off, keep in mind, guys, if you're near Austin or capable of coming to Austin, this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday coming up, the 15th, 16th, and 17th, we are doing Fest of Us in Austin, where every night there will be events around town that we have planned for you guys that we will all be at, and it's going to be so much fun. Fun! And it's totally free! No charge to go to any of these events at all. You just have to... RSVP on the Facebook page for it or on the oneofus.net page. Go to oneofus.net and look for the Festivus banner. Click on it. It'll bring you to it and give you all the relevant info. It's going to be awesome. Is there anything else they can click on? They could click on all sorts of things. Like, for instance, the images of the covers of the movies that we're going to be talking this week about this week. Ooh. And if they click on those, a little button will pop up that says, Sucker! No, it's not what will happen. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> channeling very old vaudeville comedians. Um, uh, what will happen is it'll bring you to the Amazon page where you can buy that title, which, if you did it through that link, will indeed give us a little bit of a kickback. But that's not all. If you click on that link and you're like, you know what, maybe I don't want that title. Maybe I just want to get the digital download of it from or there. Or maybe I just want to go buy an old Monkey's Greatest Hits album or whatever it might be. Or, or you know, pre-order Frozen. Oh, no, you can't do that, can you? <laughs> Not through Amazon. Oh. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they've, they, they want the people out of fall now. Disney, um, Amazon, head-to-head. -head. Did not know that. True but story. anyway, either way, regardless of the politics of the situation, we get a kickback no matter what you order from Amazon, as long as you start from one of our links. So please, if you're going to be spending, you know, you're like, you know what, I'm finally going to get that collectible that costs $5,000 and I'm going to get it on Amazon or my new laptop or whatever, do it through one of our links and we get a kickback. And somewhere an Amazon accountant goes, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> Worst business model ever i don't understand it but there you go uh so you can get almost anything on amazon except for frozen pre-orders so there you go 
And apparently a lot of books now. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> They've been falling out. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but there's some kind of issue. Anyway, uh, also become a subscriber if you get a chance that you can click on our subscriber links, which are on every page, including this one. And we have all sorts of advantages for you. We send you free stuff in the mail. We have special forums where you get private stuff just for you. You get to pick what commentaries we do, all sorts of fun stuff. So please help us out. It's what keeps the lights on. We appreciate the hell out of it. Now, normally this is the part where I'd say something about opening the letterbox, but we're going to do that at the end of the show, because once again, I forgot to put up the post for it until just now. So It's the professionalism they admire. It's what brings the audience back. I think that's what it is, actually, Richard. I think it is that professionalism. <laughs> They're like, hey, I love the fact that Chris can barely crawl out of bed in the morning, much less remember to post things when he's supposed to. <laughs> anyway, it's time to dive right into the meat of the show and do the reviews. And I think we're going to start out with one of the most anticipated for cult movie fans Blu-ray releases in quite some time. That is Scream Factory's Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, dear. You know, I did not know that this was directed by Brian De Palma. Did not know that. After seeing it, it is not surprising. <laughs> because De Palma is like the gayest straight man who's ever lived. He is so flamboyant and huge in everything that he does. You know what I mean? Yep. He's like, just, like, he's doing Hitchcock, but he does it, like, neon. <laughs> you know? When he does it. Not in this movie. Like, if we see Dress to Kill, or, uh, God, what was the one, uh, with, that was the Rear Window? Oh, uh, now you... <sighs> Yeah. Now we we'll, we'll remember it in five minutes' time. That one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're very exaggerated. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is the one that should be that way. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a, it's a double bill with the apple. Yeah. Is what this movie is. And it is a cult musical film, rock and roll musical film that really I would put on a must see list for anybody who feels like they need to see every cult movie that's worth seeing. Yeah. You may not want to watch it twice. We may do, This may be one of these ones where we disagree a little bit. Right. I'm not saying this is a really good movie. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a mess. There's a reason the critics totally slammed this when it came out, because it is kind of a mess. But it's one of those, it's a fun mess, and it's a fascinating mess, and you're like, how did this even get made mess? It's it basically, Brian De Palma decided uh, to do Phantom of the Opera, but to do it as a glam musical of all things... Which, there's no good reason for it. Hmm. There isn't. Uh, I, it's an inexplicable plot. It has no nuance or subtlety or character development at all. There's an evil record producer who wants to set a club up and this like naive figure who's supposed to be kind of a, an early Elton John-esque piano player, but is also a completely insane composer, decides he's going to uh, you know, steal this guy's music. Uh, make his own celebrities, open his club. The composer is in a horrifying accident. And it's this weird mix of slapstick and kind of quasi-horror. And some of the visual tricks that you know De Palma uses a lot better later on. Yeah. This is like a, a, a really high-budgeted student film in a lot of ways. And you kind of go, oh, it's somebody ripping off De Palma. No, because this is 74. Hmm. So, <laughs> department, you know, I, I think there was a lot of coke. I think he also hated glam with a passion. This is the angriest uh, film about the music industry I think ever made. Well, it's such a weird 
concept because it's not just a remake of Phantom of the Opera because there's the portrait of Dorian Gray in there inexplicably as a third act twist. And Faust. And Faust, which is it wears on its sleeve completely as much as it does the Phantom, you know, because the whole idea is this the Phantom wants to, like, have this evil record producer put on the production of his giant rock musical of Faust, but only if the one girl that he has just fixated on inexplicably, played by Jessica Harper, who also played Janet in the in the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show Shock Treatment, yep. only if she sings it. And if she doesn't sing it, well, some motherfucker's going to have to die. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, it, that's the funny thing, is that this film is totally, totally just disaster area. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It, you're not, it's not engaging. It's gained this cult following, and it's also gained a... a, a there is a lie about this film, which I've seen propagated and promulgated all over the place, that you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show came after this. Well, Rocky Horror Picture Show did. The Rocky Horror Show came out the year before. And I, I watching this, I have a sneaking suspicion De Palma may have seen uh, the Rocky Horror Show and gone, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Because it, there's moments that it's very clearly hewing into the same territory, whether that was just the zeitgeist, or whether the the you know there's some less than accidental coincidence here, I I don't know. But you know, will this appeal to people who like Rocky Horror Picture Show? I think yes, probably. Yeah. Did does it deserve the same kind of cult cachet that Rocky Horror has? No way in well, hell. No, mainly because the songs just aren't anywhere near as good or catchy or memorable. Quite honestly, there's I, there's a couple that are okay. There's nothing. It, it, this is one of these ones. I think it's if it wasn't for the fact it's De Palma. Um, I mean, is Jessica Harper a baritone or is it just me? Is uh, <laughs> it's not her singing. <laughs> no, are you sure? Because I sound like it's the same voice in Shock Treatment, and she was a professional singer yeah, as well. It may have been her. I know a yeah. lot of them were were recast. I mean, the only really good thing about this is the guy who plays Beef, who's the uh, oh the yeah. the, uh, the Garrett Graham, Garrett Graham, who you've seen play like crazy guys and like corporate villains and stuff. And he years also played after this. one of the Q in uh, Star Trek. Yes, he did. Yeah, and like, he's he's great in this, and he's the only one who, who kind of plays it big enough. Everybody yeah. else is a little bit. That's you know, by far the highlight. Of the, the highlight of the film is that and the way the Phantom looks, which is admittedly pretty cool. He's got a great outfit. <laughs> and Paul Williams, who who plays the evil producer Swan, and he he was famous. He wrote for pretty much everybody yeah. in He's the 70s. one of the was, great songwriters. And there was a, there was a really good documentary that uh, did the festival circuit. Paul Williams circ- is still alive. Yeah, yeah, that did the festival circuit. And honestly, I think that's <laughs> much more worth wasting uh, 90-odd minutes yeah. of your time. This is, this is you know, it's, it's De Palma. I think you know, there's an argument for being a De Palma completist. I think you will watch this and go, oh, yeah, he did that a lot better three, four films later. Uh, um, I'm not a big Brian De Palma fan. I think that I liked his films when I saw them originally when they came out, and now all these years later watching him, I'm like, wow, this is a terrible ripoff of much better filmmakers. He's really good when he's when he's being just hacky. Yeah. And when he just, just embraces his hackiness, full flow, which, you know, something like Carrie, I think, you know, really That's works. arguably his best film. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and The Untouchables, where the studio obviously stamped on his head and said, you will behave yourself and try and turn <laughs> in something coherent. But even that is a narrative mess. But most of his stuff, it is style over substance and kind of schlocky but not in a not in a charming way it's just schlocky yeah it's like i would say like michael mann figured out how to do that right with even st- having similar chops in some ways and he does the style versus uh, uh substance thing 
where you're like, I gotta admit, the style is amazing and it's cool and not as cool as Ice. That's Vanilla Ice territory, but you know, a man, a man gets but, better actors. But yeah, I think that's part of it. He doesn't. I don't think Brian De Palma knows how to direct actors. Yeah, I really don't. Or people in general. Um, but I, you know, I think that's the thing, though. You're not expecting a good movie out of Phantom <laughs> of the Paradise. You're expecting a big, colorful, crazy mess, and that's exactly what you get. And like I said, I mean, it really is one of those. It's influenced other movies. It's in influenced a lot of musicians strangely enough yeah. you know over the years it's i guess you know if you were eight when you saw this then okay <laughs> it's like hey the the original theatrical version of uh or not original but the the 70s flash gordon film huge influence on me yeah terrible fucking movie <laughs> great soundtrack oh yeah yeah well that's a great album that happened to be the soundtrack yeah, shall we great, say. great album that it, well you know come on they actually say flash on it a and lot. it's got brian blessed it's brian blessed is awesome and uh james bond what's his name played the tree dude oh uh Page timothy dalton timothy dalton yeah other one anyway yes the best part about this is garrett graham plays beef as this over-the-top rock star when he actually dies it's the fun it was stop the movie because i was laughing so hard just for his performance during it so fucking funny and there are parts that you're like where's this movie going because this is not anything like phantom of the opera yeah i mean like first off Shouldn't there be some romantic connection between the Phantom and the female protege? But no, she is a completely shallow bitch who wants nothing to do with him on any level until it's absolutely necessary that she finds a soul in literally the last three seconds of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and he is kind of an obsessive stalker. <laughs> it just, there's no, there is no soul to this film. It is all a 70s record cover, al- uh, it, album cover. De Palma doing nasty things to vaguely unpleasant characters with a lot of neon and a lot of 50s throwback references. And it's like, ah, and, and, ah. and Paul Williams is just weird casting no matter what. There's a scene where it's supposed to be a flashback where he's in the bathtub talking to himself in the mirror. And he's so, I mean, he was probably already in his 30s or 40s when they did this, but he looks 12 and it's just creepy. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like Herschel Gordon Lewis shot it. And actually, I think I would have preferred to see Herschel Gordon Lewis's Phantom of, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. I kind of would have liked to see yeah. that too. Are you sure he didn't do one? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody call Herschel. Uh, anyway, it comes with, as, as you will, from the Shout and Scream Factory packages. There's lots of extra features. There's Brian De Palma backstage at the Paradise, which is a... 33-minute interview with Brian De Palma where he talks about how he came up with it, the score, the casting, yada, yada. There's our 34-minute interview with Paul Williams, who is just such a cool and funny guy. He really is. He's just fun to listen to and weird-looking. Uh, <laughs> um, Behind the Mask with Tom Berman, which is an interview with the special effects supervisor. 11 different sequences in alternate takes that are shown in split screen that shows you how they appeared in the final version of the film as well as the different version they had. Uh, outtake footage called Swan Song that uh, it, it, it takes a look at post-production trying to remove references to the original name of Swan, Paul Williams' character's musical Enterprise, and the name needed to be changed to Death Records after Led Zeppelin actually formed a Swan Song record, so they had to fix that in post. Interesting enough. There's a still gallery audio commentary with Jer- uh, Jessica Harper, Garrett Graham, and the Juicy Fruits, which is this 
shallow band that keeps appearing during the thing that the Phantom can't stand. Uh, audio commentary with the production designer, who probably was the most talented person working on this film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. And then, Although, the, weirdly, the transfer is not that good. For, it's for, okay. for a shout, uh, for, you know, and particularly a release of theirs, which I think is so eagerly awaited, uh, it was all right. It makes me wonder whether this is something that, you know, the studios were not overly interested in saving and you had to do some serious work. But the sound restoration is phenomenal. Well, oddly, uh, you know, a lot of these nowadays, they give you the Blu-ray and the DVD. Well, the DVD has completely different set of supplements with it, which is an odd choice. I to don't do. know why you would do that. Yeah, but there, there's more. There's Paradise Regained, a 50-minute documentary that takes a look at the film, an interview with Paul Williams with Guillermo del Toro interviewing him, interview with the costume designer, interview with the producer, interview with the, the drummer. Who the hell interviews a drummer except pizza companies looking, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you need a job? <laughs> Sorry, drummers. Uh, anyway, there's even more than that. The list literally keeps on going. So this, if you're a fan of Phantom of the Paradise, this is almost certainly going to be the final word on this film. I, I can't believe there'd be anything left to say. Yeah. Yeah. This is about as full coverage as is ever going to be done. And probably, you know, just the version that they'll just port to whatever comes after Blu-ray, <laughs> the Superman crystals or whatever. <laughs> this is, it's more than this film deserves, honestly, <laughs> considering some of the stuff that the, you know, some of the re-releases you get where they're like, Dizzletary couple of, of commercials added onto the back, and that's pretty. Maybe, maybe a radio spot. And I'm like, really, really, this is what we're getting subjected to for this? Mm, no. Mm. Uh, anyway, well, let's move on to another Shout Factory or Scream Factory in this case, which is Shout Factory. Just that's what they put their horror under. Uh, another release from them called Without it, it's, Warning. It's Shout Factory, but creepier. Yes, creepier. I said it. <laughs> Without Warning is a 1980 Alien film, sorta. Ish. <laughs> that is best recognized mainly because it's was the first film and only one of two films that Jack Palance and Martin Landau were in together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood, you were wrong. I feel, you were wrong people. I feel like that should be the entirety of the review. Yes, yeah, like that's, just, that's justification alone that's for, for watching it. Pretty much the main and only reason to watch this film. I mean, maybe if you're... I, I guess you could say there are Kevin Peter Hall fans out there who often was in the costume and acted for several very oversized creatures like Predator in the first movie and Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. He plays as best as he can the alien creature in this that's costume was apparently so limited he was almost incapable of movement. Yeah. So all, every a, shot of him is almost completely static. With a totally immobile mask made by Rick Baker in possibly the laziest work that that man ever did. It looks like Baylock from the uh, the Corp Might Maneuver. It looks a little too much like It Baylock. looks It looks like he really he really went... They're paying me $10,000 to design this. Oh, look, Baylock, done, out, see you, bitches. I mean, funny enough, the plot is technically the same as Predator. <laughs> Alien hunter who hunts for sport on the Earth, hunting down people, except it's completely lame and has no budget. Yeah. <laughs> he has these little, you remember when they made those Frisbees that were made of cloth? That you could get, and you like throw those things, they kind of wobble in the air and look like crap, and they were not that popular, so they don't make them anymore. Yeah, that's what he does, except they're covered with goo. And hair. And hair. They, Ooh, are actually, yeah. they actually basically look like... they. There's kind of a dentata thing going on there, if you've yeah. ever seen the film Teeth. I've always suspected this one, this is what it actually looked like. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's just this alien wandering around the middle of nowhere... Um, 
throwing hairy frisbees at throwing people. Throwing blood-sucking frisbees at people. Yeah. And, but he's not even really in it that much. No, uh, barely at all. It, it's mainly uh, a pre- um, NYPD Blue, David Caruso. Yeah. Well, even not even mainly. He's like one of the first people to go. Oh yeah. Well, and, but the thing is, you turn up and you think, oh, he's he may well turn out to be the lead, and he's a complete dick, which I hear is yeah. true for David Caruso. I have heard that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, him and his friends are going to go out to the countryside, and they meet some of the most brilliantly stupid redneck crazy people you've ever seen. Uh, you know, that's where kind of the only fun to be had is in here because Jack Palance is a local truck stop owner who's kind of the, the old wise man who's obviously going to be, he's either going to die early or he's going to be their only help as it goes in these things. And, you know, it's Jack Palance, man. You can watch him do almost anything. And- Which, considering his final line is him running running around going, alien, alien, <laughs> and like, it is the the most overblown <laughs> delivery, even Jack Palance. Even for Jack basically Palance. basically hissed every single line he delivered for the first 30 years of his career. He just goes, yeah, you know what? I've never really chewed the scenery. I'm going to go for this. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Martin Landau plays the crazy ex-Vietnam guy who is like sees aliens everywhere. And, of course, everyone's like, whatever, sit down, drink your beer. And then it's like, oh, my God, he was right. Only they kind of turn him into the villain because he goes so whole hog crazy. He thinks everybody's an alien. You know, he's really the only face of a bad guy in this one because the alien has zero personality. Yeah. Uh, or movement, really, <laughs> of any kind. There's he, even a scene where they finally take out the alien towards the end where he's, like, on fire. And you can see there's just a stick holding him up and he just kind of lurches to the side. There is some <laughs> waddling going on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is not what you would call a good movie, but it is certainly a curiosity piece if there ever was one. Oh, it, it's also surprisingly well shot as well. Um, you know, uh, Greg Cundy, who went on to, uh, Dean Cundy rather, who went on to, uh, do pretty much direct, uh, be DP for everybody big in Hollywood in the, uh, the late half of the eighties. You know, he was worked with Carpenter regularly. He worked with, um, Spielberg. You know, it's like, you know, he was... He did this was a his... lot of Carpenter's big films. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, and then he's doing this. He's slumming. And this was pretty much his last real slumming it film. And he actually did it as a favor to the producer, who he'd worked with like five times before. Uh, typical Shout Factory release. Extras are actually pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing how much work they put into for extras for films that aren't even worth seeing in the first place. Well, um... <laughs> The, the the first big extra, which is actually well worth watching if you do pick this disc up, uh, uh, Greg and Sandy's Alien Adventures, which is an, mainly an interview with two of the cast members, uh, because obviously David Caruso was busy that week and they couldn't get him. Uh, and they're very entertaining on the issue of Palance and Landau, mainly going, oh, Palance was lovely. He told us all these stories about, about old Hollywood. And Landau, ah. And apparently Landau just stayed method all the way through oh, and gosh. basically was just a completely crazy guy who didn't <laughs> trust any of them and you can really feel them wanting to go I don't want to say anything anything bad about him but oh dear no but Palance apparently the best story they tell is that he at one point him and Caruso came very close to blows and uh, Caruso did not realize this would end badly for him because Jack Palance was carved from granite yeah yeah he's kind of a big guy western hero yeah um Apart from that, uh, Producers vs. Aliens, uh, which is an interview with one of the producers. 
Hunter's Blood with uh, Greg Cannum, uh, who went on to be a major Hollywood uh, effects guy after this. He, yeah. And he design, he didn't design the alien mask, but he did design the, the alien frisbees, which I like, and I know you hate, yeah, but well, I really I hate like the them. way they look when they're flying. They yeah, look they look like terrible. crap then. I mean, there's nothing I mean you can actually see the fishing line yeah. in every scene. But, but once like, they land on people, they actually look pretty cool. Yeah, and you get a couple of shots of their mouths going, and they look yeah. like they look like carnivorous Minox. So they're actually yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, they do. Yeah, theatrical trailer, still uh, still gallery, and uh, a commentary from the from the director and producer, which is, yeah, you can you can sit through that with him going, it's not that bad, it's all right, it's all predator, right. Predator predator ripped me off. <laughs> pretty, pretty much that in, in succession for like you know ninety minutes. It's weird that I wonder if, you know, maybe the true story behind Predator is Kevin Baker. Or not Kevin Baker Hall, Kevin... Uh, <laughs> Kevin Bacon Hall. Yeah, Kevin Bacon Hall. <laughs> if uh, the guy who played the monster... Yep. Uh, went, uh, Kevin Peter Hall went to the producers of Predator and was like, I have this great idea for a movie. If it wasn't made shitty like Without Warning was. <laughs> Could be worse. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Sorry, this is not one of the better Scream Factory produce releases, but it is worth it seeing for a laugh. Um, when we're going to move on to Ping Pong Summer. Ah, which, uh, which tragically I, I missed, but I know you enjoyed. Yeah, surprised you didn't see this at South by when it played. It, it played about a thousand times there, and I managed to miss yeah. every single screen. They even they added extra screenings yeah. for it because they loved it. And I'm not surprised because this is such a South by Southwest film and that it's just dripping with nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia has got films have gotten to the point they should just call it a genre. Yeah. You know, it's really to, you know, it's really at that point where like, that's what we got for you. It's a nostalgia film. There's not a huge, the, the, what plot there is, it's nothing you haven't seen a billion times before. You're watching this for the just so thick you can't see through it nostalgia. <laughs> it's a whole genre, which is kind of hot, wet American summer, but with the, the level of sarcasm stripped straight off the top. Yeah. And this one uh, takes place in the mid-80s, uh, 1985, with this 13-year-old kid named Rad. <laughs> you know it's mid-80s. <laughs> Must be the 80s. Uh, who's totally a nerd, and he has very specific and oddball nerd things he's into. Like, he really likes ping pong, even though he's not very good at it. And, you know, he just has trouble making friends. His older sister, who's kind of a hot proto-goth, is uh, doesn't really want anything to do with him. Uh, you know, the guy, she hasn't quite fully committed yet, but she's getting there. She's listened to Susie and the Banshees, probably, you know. Uh, she's not, she's not at Bauhaus yet. Yeah, she's not at Sisters of Mercy or yeah. anything like that. Uh, <laughs> sad that we know the tears here. <laughs> um, yes, at one point I had long blue black hair and a, a, a neon blue skeleton earring. Make what you will of that. So trendy. <laughs> well, it wasn't trendy at the time. A couple years later, it was trendy. <laughs> um, yeah, there were no hot topics back then. Uh, they go to, on summer vacation with their family to Ocean City, Maryland, which I have been to very, very many times myself. In fact, looking at this, I'm like, wow, this is, this is Ocean City how I remember it, all crappy and run down looking. <laughs> uh, it doesn't look like that anymore, I assume. But he meets this little, uh, black kid there who is, as near as I can tell, is like, somewhat autistic. He's like, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Where are you going? Like, literally meets him because the kid starts following him and won't stop babbling at him on the street. And it's like, I could either beat this kid up or be friends with him. 
little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah, a little from column. Yeah, exactly. But uh, decides to become friends with them. They're they get to be buddies and practice ping pong in this strangely secret underground club that just has arcade games and ping pong tables and air hockey tables. But of course, and puppies in a, in a windowless van. <laughs> there's Sounds very inappropriate. It's very odd. It's like this blank frontage. Like there's no sign, and you got to go through like a little bit of a warehouse first to get to it. It's like. What the, why is this being kept a secret? I don't understand. Uh, but all the local kids hang out there, uh, including... Is this a prequel to Bulls of Fury? No, no, it's not that kind of movie. Like I said, this is feels like a movie that was actually made in 1985. It completely... I, I'll give them that. Totally feels like a, a really lesser film from the 80s that was like, well, it was cute. You know, I mean, it had a sweet heart. But it's not terrible. It's not a classic. And I think the reason people are so high on this is because they made it now. Yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, they, like you'll you'll see as I go on. He meets the girl there who's kind of a preppy, but she's nice enough that even though she she's you just used to date the big douchebag guy that that keeps picking on him, she clearly is sort of like just starting to get over that whole shallowness and wants to move on to something else for whatever reason finds this kid kind of interesting and starts hanging out with them she is the weirdest thing of this movie is that she's addicted to throwing ridiculous amounts of sugar into like slurpees and then like like pop rocks and and uh pixie sticks and all this and then she gets super high there's a scene from her vision where the kid's talking and she just sees sparkles going off and everything's weird like an acid flashback scene you're like diabetes you said what the fuck is that (laughs) uh and you know it ends up of course with like him challenging this the the big bad guy to a ping pong fight even though he's not that good at ping pong uh but he finds a mentor in Susan Sarandon who's the local <laughs> who's the local crazy lady who lives in the old weird house that all the kids are scared of who turns out to have a heart of gold and be an ex ping pong champion you know you you see where this is like like it's this really it could is. have been made in 1985 and it doesn't derivate from the formula at all. I I remember watching a lot of films like this Deviate. at the time, and uh, yeah, most of them were terrible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Leah Thompson plays his mom, oh. for God's sakes. It's like, the only difference is she would have been young and hot <laughs> if this was made in 1985. Now well, she's old and hot. Can we just do reruns of Suddenly Susan? No, we definitely cannot do nah. that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I get the appeal of this one. Not thing. Suddenly Susan. Carol in the City. Carol, yeah. I get the appeal of this sort of thing for some people. I do. I mean, as this went on, I was like, I can't say I didn't enjoy it. It's a cute little film, but it's a slight little piece of, of, uh, you know, uh, coming of age fluff, yeah. ultimately, with okay performances, but nothing to really write home about. Amy Sedaris has a small, funny role in here as well. It just, it is what it is. And if you know you like these little, sweet heart in the right place indie films but ones that you're not going to remember like a few months later and you like the nostalgia pieces i mean i would say the best nostalgia film ever is still dazed and confused for my money uh i think he richard linklater infused that with not only with heart but with soul this doesn't really have a soul but it has lots of heart you mean you mean make a good double bill with the wizard yeah maybe so yeah exactly you know um yeah, there's cute stuff in here, but whatever. It's got a ma- 14 minute making of. It's got an audio commentary with the director and the producer. Uh, so not a lot extra there, but I didn't really expect it. Worth a look if it sounds like your type of thing. For me, 
I'm ready to move on already. You're, you're too old and bitter for this nostalgia nonsense. I'm not bitter. I wouldn't say that. I've just seen it too many times already. And it is it is what it is where it's like, guys, the, the like you can't hook me in with a movie that the hook is made entirely out of the date. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly because that was, that was a period that, you know, for most people, all they remember is, is you know, that it, everything tasted of kind of fake orange flavor or fake banana flavor, both mm. of which are deeply unpleasant. And, and this is, like, we got past that nonsense. This actually. is fake 1985 flavor. So. Ooh, where's Arsh? <laughs> actually, it admittedly does look, like I said, exactly like a film that was actually made in 1985. So if that, obviously that's what they were going for. And kudos to you to achieving it flawlessly. You just forgot to make an interesting movie while you were doing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm apparently the one person who really is not a huge fan of that film. Like I said, it's sweet, but so what? Oh, well, I'm the bad guy. But oh, we knew that. But I think that I won't be the bad guy on this next one. Oh, oh. Pretty much everyone agrees that the new animated version of Tarzan, we are not talking about Disney's flawed but fun version. We're talking uh, about... Uh, but, but back the hell up. I will go to bat for the Disney version. I, I just said that. it's flawed but fun. I, I love that film. Oh, I think it's great, but it's not their best. No, it's not their best. But yeah. you know, I put it with, with like Legend of Atlantis or something like what? that. What? Yeah, oh, I'm like, it's way above that. Or, Way, Her- or Hercules. <laughs> Your priority list is weird because, like, you know, Hercules, I think, is, is one of the most underrated films. Uh, you're right. Hercules is actually pretty good. Yeah. That's not appropriate. Maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on before he gets let's, all... Can, no, can we talk about better films than this? <laughs> I know. You're just trying to get away from oh, it Oh, this is terrible. You know who was great? Johnny Weissmuller. No. <laughs> Um, this is from Lionsgate, I believe, and who's producing it here. It's an animated film that was made in Russia that, that must be, they, they can't have speak, spoken English when they were doing casting because they got Kellen Lutz to play Tarzan. Are you, I, what is, what is a Kellen Lutz? I'm not really quite clear on this. He is a guy who calls himself an actor, but has yet to prove that he's an actor. He was Emmett Cullen in the Twilight, uh, films. He was Poseidon in the form, film Immortals. Uh, Hercules in The Legend of Hercules. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> did the asylum make that, or did it just feel like it? He's like the latest clone out of the, like, giant vat from the same people who brought you Jai Courtney and Sam Worthington. <laughs> Sam Worthington at least has a degree of charm about him. This guy just seems like a clod. Yeah, I would hate it if it turns out he's like the nicest, sweetest, smartest I guy know, in the world. But, like, who just cares? doesn't can't act that. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll go be a plumber. <laughs> but this I'd is... like I'd actually like a nice, sweet plumber. I'm actually, I'm looking for a plumber, so may- maybe Callan, your your career path <laughs> has come up. And either way, you get to show off your ass crack a lot. So. <laughs> Uh, this one is, it's weird because it starts off as a sci-fi film. It's like, oh, look, this giant asteroid came and hit the Earth, uh, and, uh, it's what caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. Actually, it's, it but it's a, off as a cheap Discovery Channel animated, yes. uh, history of, of, uh, the Nemesis comic. This is, it, it is a very bizarre because the first thing you get is a bad CGI of dinosaurs being wiped out. I'm like, this is to do with Tarzan? I don't understand. And then you you are plagued so by a terrible voiceover, which presumes that you are a cretin and you cannot understand anything that is happening. Oh my god, the voiceover is the weirdest decision for this <laughs> film. I mean, it like it makes the Blade Runner voiceover that was added in post look like the most brilliant Hollywood decision of all time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they really think that the audience like 
are complete morons. Well, the, the Blade Runner um, uh, voiceover at least fits because they were trying to go for a the kind noir of thirties noir thing. Yeah. This is just you, look. We'll go back and, and explain that bit again because clearly. You did not understand. It's so anachronistic in just that. It feels like you're sitting next to somebody in a movie theater who is explaining things to their small, mentally, like, retarded child or something. You <laughs> That's know? just coming in right now. <laughs> yeah. That used to be an appropriate term. It wasn't meant Actually, to be I insulting. think it's somebody explaining, explaining it to their unconscious dog. It's that level of just, just like, like absolutely Why are you re-explaining on. what you just showed me what's going on in the film? It, down to when characters, human characters finally start turning up, it, the voiceover explains their motivations. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, Tarzan was confused and a little bit frightened. Worst origin of Tarzan ever as well, because it turns oh, out that he's not a small child who is who is raised by uh, by apes. Uh, he's supposed to be about eight, eight at this nine, point. Yeah, so, you know, his parents get... He's to... still Tarzan of Greystoke. Yeah. Don't make no, make no mistake. His parents are rich. They just didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> they get wiped out by a, a volcano that causes their helicopters to crash after they disturb the meteor, which is like, oh, God, there's so much plot. So it's plot a and magical, it's so intelligent meteor that doesn't want anybody to fuck but with it's it. It's never explained. And ne- that occasionally you come across, you come across mutated uh, creatures and plants that Tarzan has to contend with. Um, there are a few sequences which are so clearly ripped off from um, the Disney Tarzan. Yeah. Uh, when he's swinging around the trees or sliding along branches, and it really is just beat for beat. And, you're like, and that's the saddest thing. You're reminded of a much better version of Tarzan all the way through. Yeah, but not so much that you can enjoy this by just thinking about those films, because this is just that bad. I mean, all right, so th- they bring in Jane, because you got to, who is the you know the eternal tarzan love interest who was turns out their families knew each other when they were kids and they knew each other when they were kids actually in the books it's uh, jane is not the eternal love interest at the various points in the books it's actually uh, one of the female apes sweet yeah there you go true story <laughs> a little bestiality in your old well sci-fi. but the thing is i mean like yeah robert e. howard was right and these he was like well you know what he's raised by them he's hanging out with them yeah it's not yeah. like he wouldn't tag a cute one if it was nope. interested what where else is he gonna go they don't have like you know okay cupid for the jungle <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do a thing he's called tinder um, uh, oh. Spencer Locke, who is best known for playing the role of Kmart in the Resident Evil uh, series, oh, uh, voices Jane. <laughs> I mean, uh, she does a competent enough job. There's just like, there's just not much to her. I don't think she'd pass a special test, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, Go back to Blade Runner, I don't think she'd convince people she wasn't a replicant exactly. and an early model. I, you know, and the villains here are the generic corporate villains. Uh, that are basically just doing the same thing that Tarzan's dad was trying to do. So it's like, okay. Uh, there's a, like, a, the weirdest part of this whole film to me was Jane's dad, who comes in here and he's just like Tarzan's dad was, like, very idealist, you know, trying to find out what's going on. You know, we've heard this meteor is here and has mystical powers and would be a great scientific discovery, except he's a little more you know, absent-minded, if you will. And they Apart do this the fact thing... He's completely ripped off the depiction of, of uh, Jane's dad in uh, uh, in the Disney Tarzan. Right. It, like, really but is. They do the weirdest thing where they're like, oh, like a big like plot point in the third act is like, oh, no, we have to save my dad. And they don't. And the movie just forgets that her dad had anything to do. And then it's Stinger 
is, oh, no, don't worry, folks, he's fine. Yeah. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> such a weird storytelling. This thing is such a mess. I was losing the will to live by that point. And the, the animation's cruddy. Oh, let's, yeah. Let's say, they, let's say this flat out. It's plasticky. Uh, it has no character to it at all. Um, you know, you summed it up perfectly when we chatted about this earlier. When you said, you know, it looks like it was one one pass away from being actually complete. This almost yeah. looks like storyboards from much better a much better film. Every single character has the same shaped head. They've all got this kind of olive shaped head with different bad haircuts. It's just nothing about this to make you care. I mean, it really like I, I don't know why there wasn't somebody at some point went. This should not be released. We need to start again. Hmm. Yeah. Terrible. It, it is terrible. Absolutely not worth anyone's time. Not Even if you're an ape completist, yeah. no. Ape completist. Oh, or I, a small I, child that doesn't know any better, don't give your child this to watch. They're going to have, uh, unless you want to, sh- unless you happen to be a huge fan of another animated film that doesn't look all that great and you want to lower the bar <laughs> for your kid first, <laughs> uh, there's a few extras on here, like a making of for 11 minutes, uh, Kellen and Spencer shooting the shit behind the scenes and a motion capture the actors had to do for the apes, which is terrible for the record. <laughs> um, yeah. Why are we, who can, no one is going to buy this. No one. No one should buy this. <laughs> should be landfill along with ET Atari 2600 cartridges. I think it's cartridges. very telling that, um, this was filmed in three, this was filmed and cinematically theatrically released in 3D. I can't believe And there's anything. no trace of the 3D version in the discs. No. <laughs> like, I think they, they went, there is no point burning extra plastic for this. Nope. Well, let's talk about something a little more interesting than that, and that is Anna, a Spanish American psychological thriller, uh, the, the debut feature of the filmmaker Jorge, uh, Jorge Dorado. Uh, with Tysa Formiga, who you might, you know, everybody knows her older sister, Vera. I did not realize till reading up about this that they were actually related. Yeah. Uh, obviously, huge gap in sisterhood because Vera's like almost 40, I think. And, and I, uh, Vera's o- over 40. I think she, like, there's like a 21 year gap between the two, which has meant that in various different films, uh, Tysa, I think is how it's pronounced, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Who is currently working with one of our favorite directors, Ty West. Oh, okay. Uh, she is in uh, Ty's new film. Um, yeah, she's 19. Yeah, she, has, at various points, has played uh, Vera's, uh, Vera's character's daughter mm. or or a younger version of Vera. So they are, they're like... They're, and, and There's a similarity. Yeah. It's not so much as to be like where I would automatically assume that she was related. they got the family eyes. they got the they're family very eyes. very distinctive, distinctive family uh, eyes. I, I know her best from the American Horror Story because yeah. she plays, she's in every season of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this film, which you may have seen at festivals, called Mindscape, is a... Which is a terrible, yeah. terrible title. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they changed it to Anna. Yeah, I'm not sure Anna's any better because it doesn't tell you what kind of film it is at all. It doesn't say, this is a genre film. To me, it sounds like this is a dry British uh, drawing room film that takes place in the 19th century. Whereas Mindscape <laughs> sounds like a, a bad piece of, of 80s sci-fi gibberish well, without some, the budget to do anything. To me, in in some ways this is a bad piece of sci-fi gibberish it's inception but kind of dumb <laughs> i know you really like this i like this but i really had very mixed feelings about it i liked it at first and i think it's a pretty looking film no question at all and i love anything mark strong does i think he's a terrific actor and it's nice seeing him finally get a chance to be a protagonist instead of the antagonist but ultimately 
the, my suspension of disbelief could not hold up to where this film wanted me to well, go. I, I see it as fitting in this kind of tradition of, of modern Spanish Gothic, which, you know, it's the only place left where the directors are prepared to embrace that kind of level of, you have to suspend disbelief. Yeah. This is, this is Jane Eyre... Uh, with mind powers. Uh, basically, Mark Strong's character is this guy who is a um, a mind detective. His job is to go into people's memories um, and find out what happened to the crime scene. Uh, he has a breakdown and stroke uh, during one of these in- of these incursions, and uh, it's given some time off. And his boss says, "Well, you know, I don't need you to do any any detective work, but there's this kid, and she's got a lot of mental issues." Um, and want you to go and kind of help her as a, a, a therapist almost, try and find a traumatic memory. Uh, his boss, played by Brian Cox, who... You always know, pleasant to see him. Always great to see, see him turn up, even when he's not revving on all cylinders, still fun. And so he gets sent to this extremely rich people's house where they're keeping Taser Farmiger upstairs in the attic. Um, and it is, it's laden with all these kind of gothic overtones and like pure gothic. And I really liked that. It's got a, ter- I, I hated it at the beginning, actually. The first 10 minutes, I think, are clumsily written. Uh, it does an info dump via, uh, via TV. Um, and it's like, you know, that doesn't feel right. I wish filmmakers would stop using TV news broadcasts as a, a way to explain something that's happening because it just always feels totally artificial. It doesn't feel real. The only one that got away with it in recent memory was Shaun of the Dead and that's because Shaun used real TV programs and real TV announcers and you get the feel right for it. This doesn't. But then it becomes this kind of weird closed bottle. Is she manipulating him? Are her memories real? Is she a sociopath? Is he having a breakdown of some variety? Or is there a conspiracy by her stepfather who if she dies, he gets none of the money that she stands to inherit. But if she lives and is put away in an asylum, he gets everything and she gets nothing. Yeah. So is this a situation where he's trying to make it look like she's crazy to put her away? You know, I think the performances of Mark Strong and Tysa are very good and they work, play off each other well. And there's certainly even this undertone of sexual chemistry there that is not wanted like i mean like the care like the part of the very important part is for mark strong to totally deny that he would ever feel anything like that yeah for this girl who is playing a 16 year old but she is whether she's innocent or guilty she's clearly manipulative and i think my biggest problem with this film is that very early on it becomes entirely clear to the audience who the bad guy is in this film, because there's just quite simply no way it couldn't be, (laughs) you know, and the filmmaker is clumsy enough along the way with trying to make him make it deceptive. And the little red herrings he throws in here don't terribly make a lot of sense when you get to the end and you figure out why those red herrings were there. You're like, what? What? I just, I felt that the whole thing was very awkwardly put together. I think it's a very smart script, that I think was mishandled by the director. Whereas I, I think a lot of the stuff that's in the, the problems, some of the problems may be in the script. I, th- I think it's beautifully shot. You know, I think it ha- and, uh, like I said, it fits in that tradition the of cinematography like orphan is nice. and orphanage. That are, you know, I think those, a lot of those people who, who've worked, I mean, he's worked with Guillermo del Toro like, dozens of times sure. as, a, as a second unit guy um, and Almodovar as well. So this guy's a very respected cinematographer. I, I, I think that shows. 
But, uh, but I think it does come down to the fact that you know, I think the scenes with Mark Strong uh, and Tessa Farmiga, who really drive the film, I think they're so good together. The, and they both understood exactly what kind of story this is. And I think you sometimes actors get into it and they don't get the influences and the traditions that it's fitting into. And I think they did. I think for me, that's why this works. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I think the biggest strength there is, in fact, those two when they're on screen together. There's just there's a lot of things that are supposed to create emotional impact that the the ending completely undercuts, like just completely undercuts it. Um, and the like I said, I never felt like there was much a mystery. I felt like it was like someone who you watched steal your wallet trying lamely to explain to you why it wasn't him who st- stole. Whereas your you know, for me, that's that's. Yeah, that's part of the melodrama of, of, of Gothic. I'm, so I'm okay with it. I think it just, I, I think it's, it's of a tradition. It's not trying to reinvent that tradition. I think it's just trying to do that tradition well, and I think it does do that well. Oh, fair yeah. enough. I mean, like I said, I didn't hate this film. I just at the end went, meh, because of the fact that if you're going to make a twisty thriller, you have to sell me like crazy with the end. And this completely did not. I think it is proof that, uh, Tess Farmiga maybe needs, you know, She's she's got a lot of potential, like, and I hope she gets stuff beyond um, the uh, American horror story stuff because that's kind of like eating up a big chunk of her career. And I'm yeah. really glad she's working with Ty, who I think is yeah, a great director and is really brings the best out in his cast. She's a very beautiful, but in a very sort of haunting, like haunted. Even yeah. a character describes her character as haunted in here at one point. There's, like there's, that's who she is as an actress. She looks haunted, like something fucking terrible happened to this chick at one point. <laughs> There's a great moment where she looks straight through the camera, and it's it's a, an obvious, complete violation of the fourth wall, mm. and she carries it. Well, There's because a real it, char- this, and that takes a certain degree of charisma in the same way that you know Mark Strong has that charisma of just like you know, this this broken heavy, you know, the guy who's who's cracked too many knuckles over the years on somebody else's face, face and you get that feeling again from him here um yeah i was going to say about the fourth wall thing i think it carries because ultimately what you realize is is that it's an in joke that explains the clue that a lot of people probably didn't pick up on that was happening all the way throughout the film yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway like i said make up your own mind go with richard go with me either way i think it's worth watching whether you love it or go eh you're not having a, a good shot. week with things that subscribe pretty spot on to uh, a, an old genre. I mean, you didn't really like Ping Pong Summer. You didn't really like this. And they're both kind of, they're both very retro. Well, I usually like the gothic thriller. Like I said, my biggest problem is I think it falls apart plot-wise yeah. at the end. So it doesn't really I'm work I'm not saying it's, it's, it's a superior addition to this. I mean, it, you know, I, I mentioned Orphanage earlier, which right. I, I think is much better. Oh, yeah. But in kind of this, this stuff that's come post-Devil's Backbone that is straight ahead, Iberian Gothic. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really liking it. You know what movie I wish like that I could see again for the first time is Fallen. Oh yeah. God, I love that fucking movie. It's like every time I, any time I hear "Time is on your side," uh, you know, I has anybody done a good re-release of that? Immediately picture that film and go, "God damn, that's a creepy movie." <laughs> anybody, you know, that that really cries out for a you know a, a good restoration. And I think now that Shout Factory are running out of stuff in the eighties, that seems like, like maybe going to the you know, great stuff in the nineties. And not everybody caught. I mean, they did just put out Ravenous, so uh, true. So maybe true. they're looking in the direction of Fallen. Uh, maybe so. Anyway, they're probably not looking in the direction of. Uh, how do you even pronounce this? It's not Jamie. It is, it is actually is it, Jamie. It's just it's spelled Jamie. 
Jamie. Jamie, private school girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. I see. Uh, I saw something else, another series with Chris Lilly, an Australian comedian. Um, I, I think I got through like three episodes of uh, We Can Be Heroes, Finding the Australian of the Year, before I went, this is not for me. Uh, and ev- I watched, I think, an episode of Angry Boys and went, yep. Not for me. Uh, well, I'm going to be joining you on Not For You Island. Uh, this was unendurable, and I don't know why HBO has decided to give this full court press. Yeah, they put out or all the... pick it up. They put out those other two shows, too. Somebody... This is clearly um, somebody at HBO... Is Australian. ...really, really <laughs> likes Chris Lilly. Um, this is uh, basically... It's a kind of mockumentary... Comedy mockumentary series about... A, uh, you know, this girl at a private, a private school, and she's just awful. And it, nothing about her is, is, is likable, but she's got enough money and enough friends to be completely bitchy, and the whole thing centers around her. This and it's a dude been, playing her. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's Chris Lilly, who, you know, is one of these guys who kind of disappears into a character, you know, for a whole series. And it's a spin-off of those other two shows, because yeah. she was a character in both of those shows. And obviously, huge hit in Australia, you know, enough that they went, hey, let's, let's give her her own show. I, You know, I'm really... I find a lot of this kind of comedy of, of awkward mockumentary humor uh, fairly unendurable. Yeah, I think the only guy who can really do it is Christopher Guest. And even Guest, you know, Guest does it with a lot of charm, um, and he lets people, you know, really, you know, you, they're, they're doofuses, but they don't really, you know, at the end of the day, you still kind of like them. And there's usually at the end of a Christopher Guest thing, there's kind of a, you know, happy ending of some variety this is just awful awkward people and you know oh we need a series to remind us that 15 year old girls can be god awful human beings <laughs> you know particularly spoiled rich 15 year old girls so like who cares this is really one of these things i think it's you know, it, it, six episodes thank goodness it's not it's an australian uk style <laughs> season length because otherwise this you know this this Heads into unendurable pretty quickly, and she's just like, "Oh, you know, oh, I got sent a, a a picture of my boyfriend's penis, and there's just like a two minute discussion of his penis, and, and then voiceover, and like, ugh, it sounds really, awful. It, it really, it, it's just dull. I didn't laugh once. <laughs> I I really just Australia sat with it, and I'm like, this Australia, you can do some great great things, but this Australia, is if you don't a cut failure. this shit out, I'm gonna put you over my Sydney. Oh, <laughs> Brian. I had to throw one in. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not going to pull the rubber mask off and be the, like, hey. you know, I, I think in the in the wake of the office, I think a lot of stuff like this got greenlit, and the office is not the 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 sole series that did this kind of mockumentary. Sure, sure. You know, there's a lot of British British comedians have done very similar things. Uh, you know, people like us, which is radio series, which you can get hold of, is great. I've never seen this anything as obnoxious as what Chris Lilly. I yeah, nothing. It's I'm just not distasteful and not funny and just dull because of the fact that it's not funny. It's going over ground that so many people have already gone over and so much better, and we're smart enough not to stretch out into a whole thing. I, I see the clear difference between something like this and Kirby Enthusiasm. You go back and you look at the first season of Kirby Enthusiasm, and it looks like it's a series of gag episodes and it's just like you know each episode ends with something else awkward and unpleasant happening and then you get to the final episode and you go oh it 
all paid off and there's this big meta story that i had, had no idea was coming and like this you know that's why that series that series worked yeah and why it had longevity there's nothing here that says this needs a second season there's nothing here that says this needs a second episode you could have done this in maybe an anthology series where you have him doing lots of different characters yeah, like the comic there's strip or nothing like that. yeah nothing here that i just no just Disney. So our anti-pick of the week. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wow. It, it, no, I think it's fighting with Tarzan for, you know, which, which, do, you, which do you get Kevin Peter Hall to uh, which is throw less... at people uh, in slow motion in an unconvincing <laughs> alien mask and hopefully, like, it bleeds them out? Well, much better for television comedy is The Birthday Boys, season one, uh, available from Stars slash Anchor Bay. And you, you may this aired on IFC. You may not have heard of this. I had not heard of this. But this is uh, Bob Odenkirk from Breaking Bad and, and more importantly, Mr. Mr. Show, show, in this case, uh, is the executive producer for the show, also appears on it a lot. But it's a whole team of very young comedians who I've never seen or heard of before. Jefferson Dutton, Dave Ferguson, Mike uh, Hanford, Tim Kalpakis, Matt Kowalik, Mike Mitchell, and Chris Van Artsdalen, <laughs> who are actually very talented young sketch comedy uh, folks. And it feels like a uh, higher... You know, I guess it, part of it is because of the better video quality we have now, but a better produced looking Mr. Show with a much wider range of people who are doing it. It still has that theme where every episode kind of has, you know, keeps coming back to bits and the bits end up interacting with each other, which Mr. Show themselves took from Monty Python. Yep. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with that. Nope. Monty Python just showed everybody how to do it right. <laughs> uh, and it is genuinely funny, but it's still has that feeling like these guys aren't completely 100% confident yet in what they're doing. Hmm. Uh, now, they're all from Comedy Bang Bang, writers and occasional actors on that, which, of course, is very much uh, like the new hot hip place for comics to come out of right now. I mean, forever it Funny was... or Die just cried. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Well, Funny or Die is where they said people who have already done all that shit, yeah. who are ready to move on to films. This is, you know... Doing getting your own sketch comedy show is that step up from doing weekly improv in L.A. or New York or, I guess, Chicago. <laughs> uh, and th like I said, it works a lot more than it doesn't. There is some stuff in here that is genuinely, holy crap, laugh out loud, funny as hell. And there is some stuff in here that is like, okay, get on to the next thing. But that's going to be true of pretty much almost any sketch comedy show that you're going to see. Um, I don't think it's... I, I please don't take me as saying this is as quality as Mr. Show is because those guys had had a lot more experience under their belt than these kids did. Uh, but they have something here. There's some definite chemistry there. Every last one of them appears to be pretty talented. And I have to say these 10 episodes on this two discs is really worth a look for comedy fans. Where would you put it kind of comparison to? Yeah, uh, I'd put uh, it about the state. Yeah, it's very if, if anything, it feels like the state. You know, the old MTV comedy show that a lot of great people ended up coming out of. Um, uh, Michael uh, Ian Black was one of the people I believe. Well, every, everybody went on to be in Stella. Yeah. Why hasn't there been a good release of that? I actually don't know. That, that was, yeah. Anybody listening who has some authority over this kind of thing? Stella. Like, great. Stella is stellar? <sighs> That's not a pun, uh, technically. It's just. Go, go think about what you said. Yeah. <laughs> no, this, this sounds. Sounds interesting. Well worth your I'm time. I'm intrigued. Anything with Bob Odenkirk doing sketch comedy, yeah. by, in, in and of itself, 
makes it worth watching. Uh, and every episode here, and this is kind of odd, every episode is an audio commentary with the whole cast except Bob, who probably has real stuff going on. <laughs> actual job. <laughs> an actual job instead of just paying for these kids to do sketch comedy. Uh, that they all go on and they joke and they laugh around what was going on there. There's a behind the scenes piece uh, that are done, of course, mainly montages. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's surprising there even are extras really on a sketch comedy thing because usually there aren't very much for this sort of thing. There's uh, 13 minutes of bonus video with little with various clips, footage, web content. It's you know uh, there's uh, Bob Odenkirk's improvised speech from a graduation sketch where you just show him just going on and on and on, Rem- <laughs> reminiscent of Pat Oswalt when he was on Parks and Recreation. If you, will. <laughs> if you ever saw the completely finished version of his Star Wars, uh, <laughs> you know, speech to the Uber mashup speech. Yeah, yeah, so awesome. Anyway, yes, well worth your time. But I have a feeling these are guys who are probably just going to get better as they go along. So a little shaky at first, but. Definitely worth watching. Uh, next up, we have one that you saw that I did not, uh, which is 12 O'Clock Boys, which is a 2013 documentary focusing on urban di- dirt bike riders in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. Uh, does, another, this, does this cross over with The Wire? Uh, it, it could actually be a, a Wire plot. Uh, another release from Oscilloscope have been putting out some really interesting you know, sub-80-minute documentaries recently. Uh, I think they found a sweet spot there, like kind of things that have done the festival circuit that Somebody had just enough budget to put something together, and it's very lo-fi, very low-key, and I think I, uh, I, uh, this fits right into that that pattern for them. Um, yeah, I mean, this is set in one of the roughest neighborhoods of uh, of Baltimore, which is uh, you know, as as you grew up in that area of the world, so you know, like when Baltimore's rough, it's rough, uh, and it concentrates on this kid called Pug, uh, who wants to join. This is true story the the um what are called the 12 o'clock boys who are basically guys who live in these rough neighborhoods who you know a lot of a lot of them are gang members but on a sunday they all get on dirt bikes and they all just go cruising and the colors don't matter these um like bmx bikes or are they like uh, well there's like quads like motorcycle dirt bikes uh, motorcycle dirt bikes i mean some of them are on on uh, off-road quad bikes as well okay um, but it's become a real issue because, you know, you'll have, suddenly have 50 or 60 of these guys just wandering around, um, just taking over the streets. You know, they have support teams. So when the police turn up, uh, they can like throw the, the bikes in the back of the van and disappear off. <laughs> um, and, you know, Pug is this, he's at the beginning of the film, he's 10 and it follows him for the next three years of trying to, you know, get good enough to be allowed to ride with them. But at the end of the day, is you know, this 10-year-old wannabe watching these guys who are, you know, breaking the law. And there's some really interesting discussions about, well, okay, if this is the worst thing they do, is this really so bad? Is this, should the Baltimore PD really care that much? And then one of them, you know, runs his bike into a uh, six-year-old kid, uh, shakes the kid and goes, oh, what am I going to do? Leaves him and bikes off. And, you know, they do cause, you know, they do cause problems. There's, you know, there's no doubt about this. And there's, there's balance going on in the background. Like, is this really the worst thing? But Especially in time, Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, and they, you know, there is criminal, you know, this is criminal activity. It is dangerous. Um, and this, this kid who like grows up lionizing these guys and it actually becomes very tragic because Pug, he's got, you look at him when he's 10 and you think, 
he's got no chances. You know, he's one of a handful of kids with, by this uh, with this mom who doesn't really seem to be able to hold it together. But he's clearly smart. You know, he's really interested in animals, and you see this kind of fade away, and you go, "What would have stopped this kid becoming this?" By the end, really kind of hardened little street punk. And you're thinking, "God, all this possibility has been wasted." Uh, and the director's kind of balance between, you know, lauding the twelve o'clock boys who get the nickname from being able to put their bike up on their back on the back wheel and go along basically um, stunt riding, um, you know, and you know, going and then just kind of understanding that this is their one way of, of breaking the tedium and danger of their lives, which is, you know, reasonable enough. But then going, well, hang on, if you've got a ten-year-old kid like Pug who's going, I'm going to waste everything in my life. And join, you know, in the hopes that one day I can join these guys. And, you know, he's got a mother who really, there's this really sad sequence where she goes, I give him everything. And, you know, it doesn't help. And the one thought you have is, well, stop giving him everything. <laughs> you know, maybe the kids answer is to give him less. And it's, it, you know, I thought it was just going to be kind of an, you know, one of these, you see them occasionally kind of indulgent, um, you know, almost white angst. Uh, white middle class liberal angst uh, documentaries about you know a, 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 an art, art form or, or form of self-expression uh, in the African American community, but it develops some teeth towards the end where it says, you know, God, this kid's so bright. Why is 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 he doomed? Is it his environment? Is it him? Is it his parents? And it doesn't come up with a simple answer. It doesn't, you know, it it leaves that out there and it you know it doesn't want to answer everything and I, you know it's pretty powerful hmm. you know it's and it is a tragedy it's it's a modern american tragedy about you know ultimately ghetto life well it sounds pretty good yeah uh it also comes with a lot of extras yeah I, you know, it, uh, um uh, it's got a, a commentary track um where it's got some outtakes not a lot of outtakes but there's about five minutes or so and again um like with uh, These Birds Walk, which we, we talked about earlier uh, from a oscilloscope, uh, uh, which came out a couple of months ago, you know, you can see why the cuts were made. I think that the, this elegant 75-minute length really works for this. Uh, uh, bad bitches drop it low. I am sorry I had to use <laughs> that phrase. That I, Just say no, that again. Just say Bad on. bitches drop it low. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is, you know, just a, a, basically some footage of... Uh, the 12 o'clock boys doing their stuff and, you know, in the same way that a lot of them became kind of notorious by, you know, through YouTube clips. You know, it, it, this is, you know, it's not the world's most cheerful film, I've got to say, because anything set in contemporary Baltimore at the moment, which is a city which is turning around a lot. I mean, I remember first going there in the, you know, very early 2000s. It's like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's really improving a lot, but it's still rough as all hell. And this is in the roughest of the rough parts. And you just feel this sense of, of despair and doom about, about what's going on. It, this is not a feel-good hit of the summer, but it is powerful documentary filmmaking. And it, it you know, it, it really burned up the, um, the, festival. Uh, the festival circuit, yeah. and I understand why. Fair enough. All right, well, let's look at, uh, go somewhere a little different than there. Go with the latest DC Animated Universe release, Batman Assault on Arkham. Now, this is unique for the Batman 
uh, for the DC animated universe uh, films for multiple reasons, one of which is it's the first one that connects directly to a video game. Ah. This is actually set in the same universe rather than the regular DC universe. This is set in the universe of the Arkham games that have come out and takes place shortly after uh, Arkham Origins, I believe, because it's a they should have called this Batman versus the Suicide Squad, because this is the new 52 Suicide Squad, and that's they're the protagonists of this film. Batman is a supporting character in this film. So once again, that's pretty new, too, having a film called Batman, but it's really not a Batman movie. Well, <laughs> um, Batman sells more units than, exactly. than Suicide Squad. Exactly. Uh, it's... Also, the most adult of any of the of these releases that have come out yet. I mean, it is not for children on any level. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, the main character is really long, uh, uh, not long shot, uh, D- uh, Deadshot, is that mm-hmm. his name? Yep. Uh, who is ostensibly the leader of the Suicide Squad, for whatever it's worth, uh, that is forced to be put together. They're all criminals that are forced to be put together by Amanda Waller. Uh, and they've sent her them out to invade Arkham Asylum and steal something from their cases there that belong to the Riddler. The plot's actually kind of confusing, and don't worry too much about that, because the reason this is good is not because of the plot. But anyway, one of the other people, uh, well, the other people that he's with are, uh, Black Spider, Captain Boomerang, Oof. uh, Killer Frost, and King Shark. Oh, and KGB. KG Beast at first, but he dies almost immediately. Didn't he do that a lot? Yeah, they blow up, like, they're explosive implants in their necks, and so to show that they work, Amanda Waller's like, all right, there you go, his head blew up. Yeah. (laughs) Which apparently pissed off a lot of people, and I was like, who gives a fuck about KG Beast? Uh (laughs) Um, Maybe they're just going... But you kill KG Beast and you let Captain Boomerang survive? What? Well, he's been one of those guys who've been in and out of the Suicide Squad over the years. So it's like, okay, you kind of have to have Cap- Captain Boomerang. But the main one here... Yeah, but Aquaman's main... been, in, been in JLA. It doesn't mean I want to see him back True. either. The main character, other character here, though, is Harley Quinn, who everybody loves Harley Quinn. She is indeed that rarest of rare, a character from an animated series that fans love so much they had to put her in the comics continuity because she's pretty awesome. And here, of course, she's in the video game continuity... There's a scene where uh, uh, Deadshot is, like, just trying to go to bed. And he's kind of like, I want nothing to do with the rest of these people, really. But, I, you know, my head's going to explode if I don't do this, so I guess i got to do it. And she comes in, like, jumps on top of him totally naked. It's like, come on, let's do it! Because in this continuity, she has broken up with the Joker because the Joker has totally fucked her over. And she's like, nope, I want nothing to do with you. And Deadshot's like, Ugh. All right, fuck it. And he fucks her. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> so so this is really not very Bruce Tim at all. This no. Is, this is very different. No, it really is. So isn't. what's the animation style? Because, I mean, the the, you know, the, the Arkham uh, game series well, I mean, is very distinctive, and I think it's really, uh, you know, I think that's part of the appeal for a lot of people. Is it's, it's really dark and grim. And it's just, not CG. It looks like a regular release of these things huh. and i mean obviously using batman-y type color schemes it's still very batman universe it's very dark these characters are not they're not trying to turn these characters into heroes except possibly uh deadshot who is you know probably arguably the most heroic out of any of them but still clearly a villain hell uh uh killer king shark just bites off the heads of like arkham guards left and right you know, just eats them whole, whole. <laughs> so really bloody. The, the the plot, like I said, 
totally ridiculous, doesn't make a lot of sense. At the end of it, there's a twist with Batman that's like, okay, I guess I should have seen that coming, but the only reason I didn't is because it's stupid and doesn't make any sense. None of that matters. Oh, oh yeah, they do. They Tim Burton, the Joker, you know, it's just like, what? But all that being said, it's so much fun to watch. These characters have this hysterical camaraderie with each other. The action is really good. There's really fun dialogue all the way through. And you're rooting for the bad guys. Come on. That's DC Animated Universe thing. You don't see that all the time. I had so much fun watching this thing. And just knowing that these guys are like, you know, you're not... You always see the heroes beating up the bad guys, but you know they're not going to kill them. These guys finish the moves. <laughs> you know, there is no holding back. And there's also you rooting for them because Amanda Waller is such a, you know, she's a government-sponsored thug. She's a piece of shit. And you're so you're rooting for them at the very least to get out from under her thumb because she's so terrible. So they're kind of trying to manipulate the situation to to be able to not be under her control while still finishing the mission proper. It's a lot of fun. In fact, this is my pick of the week. Really? I really enjoyed this. It is, it's true. It's really flawed. No question about it. But it's one of those ones you just don't really give a shit that it's <laughs> that flawed. Its problems aren't that big a deal. And you got Kevin Conroy playing Batman again. Hey! So that's always good. Neil McDonough is dead shot. Uh, uh, Hinden Wal- uh, Walsh-, Walsh is Harley Quinn. Matthew Gray Gubler is the Riddler. Troy Baker is the Joker. <laughs> Troy Baker is so good at doing the Joker that I actually thought it was, uh, uh, what's his name? Mark Hamill? Mark Hamill. Oh. I was like, wait, is this Mark Hamill? Nope, it's Troy Baker. Second time I believe he's played him and he's doing a great job. CCH Pounder, of course, is Amanda Waller. Greg Ellis is which Captain is, Which Boomerang. is casting that they, they bought over from, um, from uh, everything. Yeah, she's, she's been doing the voice in Amanda Waller. I think she's been doing Amanda Waller for a long A few other people have done her, but yeah, she's the she's, biggest one. She does it best. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is Black Spider. John DiMaggio, a strange voice choice for him, is King Shark, but he does a good job with it. Jennifer Hale is Killer Frost. Nolan North is KGB Beast. And on and on and on. Chris Cox yeah, is honestly, Commissioner James Gordon. Here's the funny part. The only voice in here I really hated was Chris Cox as Commissioner James Gordon. Well, nobody likes listening to themselves, do they? Totally different Chris Cox. <laughs> I, I assume it's the same Chris Cox who worked for Family Guy and all those other Seth MacFarlane yeah. programs. He's usually just fine. But here, I'm like, wait, that sounds... He sounds like an 18-year-old dude, and that is not James Gordon. So, yes, I was not pleased about that. But I think this was a lot of fun. And once again, like these DC Animated Universe releases... The extras are wonderful, like they always are. You get several episodes of other shows that are vaguely related, but the main thing is the let's focus on the history of this character uh, pieces that are about 30 minutes long that are so much fun and so cool and always tell you stuff you didn't know. The be- the highlight here is the the feature on just the history of Arkham Asylum and where it came from, who developed it over the years. I mean, honestly, the guy who, uh, I, th- I think it was Len Wein, they said it was, but who had, like, came up with the most amount of just going from, well, it's the hospital, you know, psychiatric hospital, to no, it's a fucked up place with the evil background. He did it in Who's Who. What? It wasn't even in one of the books. He was like, he's like, yeah, I used to cheat all the time and just be like, hey, nobody ever said what this was. I'm going to put what it is right here. <laughs> and like, so he did this huge backstory and all this shit in, in the Who's Who, which is like the, which is like the Marvel guy, the guide to the Marvel universe or whatever, but in DC terms. And, like, it went from there on to brilliant stuff like Grant Morrison and Dave McKeon's uh, Arkham Asylum mm-hmm. book, which is still just seminal work. And the 25th anniversary version is coming out, ooh, like, in a month. really? In hardback. I'm like, ooh, that's going on my Amazon wish list. Yep. I, I think that, to me, is the most 
beautiful looking comic book I've ever read. Like just, just gorgeous art. Um, and you know, all the stuff we have now, all these Arkham games, it's all, we get that, that history of it and how it developed and where it's going. Really cool. There's also a history of Harley Quinn, where she came from, uh, kind of an accident character, you know, the way she evolved. Yeah. So yeah, really interesting stuff on here. Really liked it. Well worth your money. Um, Next up is Muppets Most Wanted. Did you get to see this in the theater? Uh, I did not. Oh, I'm sorry. I slept that afternoon. Oh, uh, see, uh, did you? What did you think of the first Muppet? Not the first first Muppet film, but the first. I, I loved film. when they when they brought it back because I think yeah. it really understood what the Muppets are at heart. Um, you know, I, yeah, nothing wrong with that film at all. I, that was that year's Lego Movie, see, as in you could have botched it. But it had so much heart and under, you know, this were people, it was made by people who, like me, laugh for hours at the line from the first Muppet film, a bear in his natural habitat, a Studebaker, which is still the greatest line in the history of film. I don't care. Screw you, Rosebud. It's such a perfect line. They got that that's what that needed to be. I can't agree with you, but I still thought it was a really good film. I think we liked it for different reasons, but I did have problems with it, which is that it wasn't really about the Muppets. It was about this totally new Muppet and a bunch of humans, and the Muppets were supporting characters. I was like, I kind of want to just see a Muppet film, not about Jason Segel and Jason this, Segel is a Muppet. And this new, weird little Muppet that doesn't have much personality. Jason Segel's Muppet, I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I'm Plus, it about- had Amy Adams. Yeah, who is complaining about? Who is? Move wonderful. on. It's still a good film. Move on. It's just never felt like a proper Muppet film to You're me. A bitter man. Whereas Muppets Most Wanted, the sequel, whereas the Muppets had more heart, this feels like it has more soul. What's <laughs> your mantra for the day? Or isn't the it? very it least, really is. more funny. <laughs> Because this feels like an older Muppets film. Now, nothing will ever be as good as the original Muppet movie and The Great Muppet Caper. To me, those are like, they're just held up on such a high tier. And I appreciate that part of that might be nostalgia because of when I saw it. But I've rewatched both of them not that long ago and went, these are genuinely funny, good movies. Whereas I love the first Muppet movie and and then kind of got a leap forward to um, Muppet Christmas Carol. You don't like The Great Muppet Caper? I like The Great Muppet Caper. I don't love The Great Muppet Well, okay, this feels more like The Great Muppet Caper. because so it's, it's my, when we might have it's a, it's a It's a heist film, ultimately, in its own way. You know, it's like you've got the, the Muppets who are a little dumber than they usually are, except for Kermit, of course, who's always the smartest one. But the Muppets, let's face it, aren't the smartest characters in the world. Nope. Uh, and they're being played by Ricky Gervais, who works for an evil version of Kermit called Constantine, who's a Russian criminal who's gotten out, escaped from the gulag, and basically has a plan to steal the crown jewels of England. Why do people keep wanting to steal them? I've never understood that. Lots it's of other jewels. Ultimate narrative. Tra- it's just a resume thing, you know? You're like, yeah. stole the crown jewels of England. It's like, Jesus Christ, all right, you're hired. If you're applying to be a thief. You know, who wouldn't, who, that would put you on the top of the list, right? Yep. You'd be like, oh, there's our guy. Stole yep. the crown jewels. Except he put it on his resume, which probably isn't the smartest thing in the world to do. <sighs> um, yeah, it's ironic, right? It's a catch-22. Isn't it ironic? Uh, so Constantine looks just like Kermit the Frog, except for a little wart on, on his face, which he covers up and then glues a fake wart to Kermit's face while he's, because they get tricked on going on a world tour. 
so that Constantine can do this and trade places with them. And none of the other Muppets notice, even though Constantine has a Russian accent and is very unpleasant, <laughs> mainly because Ricky Gervais is kind of managing the situation. Uh, plus, you know, he keeps going, stop being a dick. Tell them they can have anything they want. And they're like, oh, all you need to do is tell them, yes, you can do, you can finally do that horrible thing you wanted to do on stage, Gonzo, that will probably end up in people dying. Yay! You know, that kind of thing. Miss Piggy, I will marry you. That kind of thing. Meanwhile, Kermit, in what is the best part of this movie, goes to the gulag, gets sent to the gulag. Everyone thinks he's Constantine, along with... It's such a weird cast to this movie. Uh, you've got... Um, uh, oh, God, what is his name? Um, Ray Liotta uh, uh, and Danny Trejo as criminals in there, and then Jermaine Clement, who are all like, we thought you were... Constantine figure out quickly that he's not, but then they all, of course, end up becoming the best of friends. And it's just weird. Musical singing and dancing numbers with those three guys. <laughs> like, I mean, just Danny Trejo alone singing and dancing should be enough to make you go, I don't know if this is going to be good, but I got to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and Tina Fey is the best as the, like, warden of the prison who kind of falls in love with Kermit in there. Well, and why she, wouldn't she? She is such a riot in here. Now, not everything works perfectly here. Some of the jokes are pretty awkward. Uh, Ty Burrell plays a, plays a French Interpol director who works with Sam the Eagle, who's supposed to be a CIA guy. And those jokes can be kind of awkward uh, as they're looking for uh, the thief that keeps robbing all the these museums, which is, you know, the bad uh, Ricky Gervais and the bad uh, version of Kermit who are booking the shows so that they can break into buildings next door, which happen to be museums with priceless pieces of art that all hold the keys to being able to steal the crown jewels of England. Yes, it's a complex pot for the Muppets, I know, but don't worry about it. <laughs> but tons and tons and tons and tons of cameos, uh, a lot of fun, had a good time with this. Good amount of extra features on here as well. This uh, it has a longer version of the film. I'm not really sure what was different. It says it's the extended version. I, I don't know. There's a jokey Statler and Wald Waldorf cut of the film that's under two minutes. A ten-minute blooper reel. A little thing with the rat that's not funny at all saying, like Rizzo saying, Why wasn't I in this movie? Uh, a music video. And, you know, I mean, overall, it's a pretty good set. But that brings us to the last film we have today, which is our giveaway, which is I'll Follow You Down. hey -oh. Wait, did you just... Phrasing. Phrasing. <laughs> are we still doing that? I don't think we are. Uh. Except for when it's appropriate. And then you say, <laughs> phrasing. And then you say, are we still doing that? We are indeed. And then you say, I don't know. And then yeah. I say, except for when someone does it and you have to say, phrasing. phrasing. <laughs> oh, shit. We're caught in a time loop. <laughs> Much like this movie, I'll Follow You Down, which is, in fact, a time travel film. It is indeed. Which, by default, gives it, like, a star right there. Yes. You're like, bonus star, you're about time travel. Uh, and also, it's a time travel movie which attempts to take uh, temporal paradoxes sensibly and treat them with a degree of respect and seriousness. And it actually thinks about how time travel works. The, I, many years ago, I got to um, speak to uh, Ryan Johnson about uh, Looper, which this has some similarities to but not a hell of a lot. Um, and he said there's two ways you can do uh, time travel movies. You can either do what Primer does and really try and work everything out and make sure that there are no paradoxes, no, you know, that this is a completely 100% absolutely right from, uh, in its narrative. Or you can do uh, what Back to the Future did and go, 
well, you know, let's have them fade out in the picture. That's not how physics works. Let's have them fade out of the picture. People will understand we're doing time <laughs> stuff. Um, and this definitely goes, this is, you know, kind of closer to Primer, closer to, to Looper, which has some, you know, it's, it's thought about its physics a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it flawless. Primer might be the only time travel film that has it like, yep, you, you pretty much nailed it all. Yeah. That's, that's probably all accurate. Primer came up with this time travel mechanism and then wrote the plot around it. They made a movie about the mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. This is not quite to that case, but it does have Haley Joel Osmond back acting again. Yes. So points Which I'm to that. really glad to see. Yeah, I was like, holy shit, it's it's a kid from the Sixth Sense. We haven't seen him in anything since puberty. Yeah. You know, at least that I was aware of. Uh, and he is, hey, guess what? Still pretty good. Yeah. No, uh, basic idea is that, uh, you know, small child played by a, a child who does not look like a young Haley Joel Osment, which no. is kind of problematic. Yeah, I know. Just because we're, we're like, exactly. remember you when you were small? Can, oh, and now Couldn't not. you CG to young Haley Joel in there? Uh, and, uh, you know, his father is a uh, re- research physicist who goes off on a, a con- goes to a convention one day and never comes back. Um, and just is gone for 12 years yeah you know, and, um, Rufus Sewell Rufus Sewell is one of his rare, rare appearances where you go oh it's Rufus Sewell being good um, he's married to a still hot Gillian Anderson oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. oh it's like Christmas um, <laughs> and you know yeah, years go past it's Xmas for sure hey <laughs> years go past and his son is now a research physicist who is you know desperately putting off an offer from MIT because he wants to stay with his mother who's never recovered from the fact his father disappeared and that's really where this this film for me really works and may well push it up to be my pick of the week uh because this is a time travel film about relationships it's about the people um you know his grandfather you know his grandfather appears and says look i've got this this theory that what your father actually did was created a time machine uh using stable wormholes and managed to go back and try to meet Einstein, but actually got himself killed, so never managed to come back. Maybe we can stop him from leaving. Maybe we can build our own wormhole. And it's this this great discussion between the two of them about well, what happens if we do this? How do when you know when's the ideal point to stop somebody so they believe you that you are a time traveler and so and that they they have to stop doing this and and stabilize their life. But what really works is that Haley Joel Osment's character has a girlfriend. And she goes, well, what happens to me yeah, when you if, try and, like, change time? Time like, changes from way back then, which would be a drastic change of things. How do we know we even get together? Yeah. And this is a film about, you know, when, you know to a certain degree about, you know, you know rewriting your history. Um, but it really, it's, it comes down to some just... Sterling performances. Gillian yeah. Anderson just, you know, heartbreaking as a woman who's never recovered from the fact her husband just n- doesn't know d- what just happened. Disappeared. To him. Yeah. Just fell off the face of the planet. Victor Victor Garber, who's best known from me from Alias as like the dad on Alias, yeah. is here as the dad as, or the as, granddad. As the doting grandfather yeah, who just wants excellent. to find a way to save her, his daughter from Who is as haunted emotion by this as the daughter is but in a different way yeah and then Haley Joel Osmond's character who is so torn emotionally the whole thing has a very sort of melancholy feel to it yeah. but like a smart one it's not 
it's not relishing in that. It's just, this is an incredibly difficult moral situation. If you can do this, should you? And they, you know, people made Twilight Zone references to to this, and I think those are well deserved because at the end of the day, the Twilight Zone took a sci-fi idea and made it about character and made it about the actors. Now, you know, I this isn't a big budget film. I mean, there's you know, the the time machine is you know a metal box and then a bright light going to white. Um, so this, you know, this, it's not it's a tiny, tiny cast, but you know, I really love this little film. Uh, it really surprised me how much I liked it because it, it, you know, it, 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 uh, I wanted to see what happened to the characters, you know, the decisions they make, the processes they go through, um, you know, can you know, and how much they hurt each other by saying, "Well, I'm going to prioritize this one bit of my life over the other bits of my life," and that's really what it's about. It's about you know, personal decisions, and that's, it's really powerful. Like I, like you said earlier, it sells by the really great performances of the leads. Yeah. Uh, Haley Joel Osment is still really great actor. And he, I think he, he for, really uh, you know, kind of small kid who's, you know, you know, a little bit on the, uh, getting a little bit on the podgy side and is not afraid to, at one point to definitely show off some moobage, um, <laughs> is, is still really charismatic. And yeah. that's the thing if people forget about the six cents. He, you know, you're drawn to, to him and you really feel that this character has a very complex inner life. And he, you know, he's hanging with some pretty serious actors. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, yet again, Gillian Anderson, who gets all these great parts and people go, oh, she's had another really good part. And they kind of forget she's had a really, really strong career. And I'm, oh, I'm yeah. surprised people don't call on her more often for bigger parts because I really enjoy watching her. She's there. a terrific actress and she yeah. is great here. I really, there was not much here I didn't like. I felt like it went someplace I didn't expect it to yes. at the end. And it's not that it doesn't make sense and it's not that it doesn't work. It is. It does make sense and it does work. It's just kind of a gut shot yeah. of a sequence it's not yeah it's it, it's smart enough to you know you watch a film like this and you think well there's you know, three ways this can probably go by the end um and it goes no there's a fourth you just didn't realize it you, or you didn't want to think about it you didn't, you didn't want, want to think about it. it and it you know to kind of blindside you in that way that's 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 pretty rare yeah um, i i really was impressed by the script the performances are spectacular you know it's it's not you know, visually any great shakes, but it's just a really strong little film. Yeah. And yeah, I think this is probably my pick of the week, which oh. I did not, would not have expected in a week like this, right. but I think it probably is. A worthy inclusion to any time travel library. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is our giveaway, as I said, and Good here's giveaway. how you can win it. First, follow at one of us net on Twitter. Very key, because it won't work if you don't do that. Then you have to tweet at us with... Oh, You know this is your job, Richard. Back on the spot. You know, <laughs> it always is. It's always my job. Um, if you could time travel back to stop any one genre of cinema being created, which would it be and why? Wow. Uh, I, I can already predict what a lot of those will, the answers will be, but <laughs> we'll pick the one with the best font. No. <laughs> it's going to be anime because. No, no, because I'm not the one ultimately who picks. It's Brian. Yeah. So if you're thinking of taking advantage of the fact that I theoretically hate anime, which is not true, uh, don't, don't count on that. Uh, and then add hashtag, uh, follow you giveaway. Just follow you. So follow you giveaway 
Uh, and then we will select our favorite answer, contact you, and uh, versus uh, w- through Twitter. This is open to U.S. residents only, and you will we'll send you a copy of this movie so you can see for yourself what Richard and I are talking about. Yep. All right, before we finish up, I know we don't have a lot of time, so we're only going to get to one question. The got mail and i'm sorry about that we just had one of those days where we're fitting a bunch of shit between other shit richard you see something you want to answer scroll back up oh okay back up uh what's the funniest dvd commentary you've ever listened to i have a very uh uh, this is from edmund uh, edmund pollocks um uh, who says that this one's not my favorite, but Zack Snyder's original 300 commentary is hilarious. It sounds like you got a two-hour hand job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say my favorite uh, just makes me laugh. I go back just to listen to it because it's like it's a film I love and it's a great commentary. Uh, Pitch Black, hmm. um, which is great because it has Vin Diesel. Uh, every time he's on screen, he goes, oh, this is my favorite scene. Oh, this is my favorite scene. Um, and then Cole Hauser at one point goes, well, which, which isn't your favorite scene? And he just goes, the ones with you in it. And it's just two, it's, it's, you know, two guys who clearly like each other a lot, watching a film they really enjoyed making together and just, just taking the piss the shit out of each other and mocking each other mercilessly. And, you know, it's, Vin Diesel at a point where people really didn't know who he was yet. Um, so he's just like, ah, you know, I, I may never get to do one of these again, but this is hilarious. And it's a film franchise that, you know, it's a film he loves hmm. dearly. And you can see that this is not just him going, ah, they want me to do a commentary. He's like, I love this. And I got to have great fun. And I got to beat people up. And I created a, a wonderful, iconic character because, you know, Fuck it. Riddick's an iconic character now. You just deal with yeah, it. Yeah, deal with it. I you don't go, like it? I, Sorry. I've got to go with, with the original Pitch Black uh, actor commentary. Uh, mine, I've said this before. It's Dr. Horrible's uh, sing-along blog because they were the only ones that had took the time, spent the money, hired the people to write an entire another musical for the commentary track. It's <laughs> called Commentary the Musical, and you can actually buy the CD of just Commentary the Musical separately if you want to, in fact. I'd like... That's a lot of work to go to. I mean, my dream, my passion dream that I think of of like special releases. Someone else asked on here, I can't remember what was, what things do you wish there would be in special editions that you've never gotten yet? It's like for them to re-release the Avengers where Whedon organized, writes, and, and produces a Avengers commentary, the musical with the entire cast. <laughs> I would do anything to have that happen. Well, there's enough song and dance people uh, who uh, in the Avengers. I mean, uh, I think pretty much everybody in there would be capable of it. Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, uh, Scarlett Johansson put an album out. Yep, she did an album of uh, Tom Waits. Surprisingly good, good album, considering yeah. it's a bizarre choice. <laughs> but then again, she's done nothing but bizarre choices recently. They've all worked out. True. Yep. All right. Well, I didn't see Lucy, so did that work out? Eh, it's it's it's. Dopey fun. Okay, fair enough. I know that some of the other guys hated it, but I also talked to other people who loved it, and I'm mad I didn't see it. Anyway, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you for staying with us. Next week will be Richard and Brian. Yes. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, No, remember? Remember? Me and Brian... 
We've, we've done this before. Yeah, but it's been a while. Oh, we'll be rusty. <laughs> but it should be fun to listen to anyway. And I get a week <laughs> off, which is good, because when I come back again, i got a couple TV series to, to talk about, and I need to get caught up. <laughs> so, Are you behind on your shows? I'm a little behind on my shows. So anyway, that's it for the noise. Plus something about no releases too big, no releases too small. From Heaven's Gate to your balls, we'll see them all. I'm going to really look forward to hearing Brian not butcher that in the way that you have every single week. <laughs>